Hey, hey, water coolians. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. This week, we are lucky enough to be joined by essayist and author of the book, A Walking Life, Antonia Melchik. Antonia and I discuss the influence of the auto industry and how its leaders were instrumental in how cities were built around the car instead of uh, what everyone freely has, feet, and what that means for the future of more walkable cities. For those currently experiencing summer, I uh, I think the lack of walkable cities around the world is uh, really being driven home right now as we continue to uh, see record heat. I believe in Iran, it recently reached 152 degrees Fahrenheit, 66 degrees Celsius uh, at their airport or those in North America dealing with the poor air quality because of northern fires. Yeah, it would be nice to be able to go outside and walk around, right? Uh, These are all factors, as we discuss in this episode, that continue to negatively impact how we interact with one another, Uh, even if we have the ability to actually go outside and enjoy being outside to interact with one another. Uh, You know, would that change if we lived in more walkable cities with fewer cars uh, and more green space? A question to ponder, but uh, I think you can tell by the end of this episode what way I would answer that. And then we discuss water rights and the impact of politicians uh, making short-term decisions for their constituents and uh, uh, for their wallets sometimes, and what that means for the surrounding areas. Especially now, we are seeing more and more frequent periods of drought and dealing with its impact on our ability to farm around the world. I talk about the U.S. selling water rights away to other countries in the conversation, uh, but I did just recently read that they um, decided to revoke some of the uh, those rights to countries like Saudi Arabia-owned farms. But our conversation does tie into a few works Antonia has released related to the commons, the impact of private land ownership and how continually giving the public smaller and smaller and smaller parcels of lands has impacted that definition of quote-unquote freedom. And for those who haven't already noticed, today's episode is going to be a bit longer than normal. Our conversation just, you know, it just needed that extra time, and since obviously it's my show, you know, I get to make the rules around here. (laughs) I am interested in seeing how this episode performs, obviously your thoughts on the length, And if you, as a listener, enjoy the occasional longer episode. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to episode 83 of Water Cooler Talk podcast titled Walkable World with... Antonia Malchik. Enjoy! This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not. Because they're real. I don't actually get too into conspiracies that much, but one of the podcasts I listen to a lot is Conspirituality, and I don't know why I'm all that interested in it. I, I didn't grow up in a cult. I've never, <laughs> I've never been cult adjacent. Like I do yoga, but I've never been in one of those yoga studios where they really start to get into the you know charismatic leader and guru dynamic. Mm-hmm. But they do such a good job of breaking down like the satanic panic of the 80s and how that relates to what's going on right now with or has been going on with QAnon and other conspiracies. And so even though I'm not that into following conspiracies, for some reason, the way that they get into it really um, is eye-opening and interesting and relates in ways to things I'm interested about, which is like how people absorb information, how people form their identities, how people create um, a sense of belonging and community. 
wherever they're invited in. It doesn't even matter if the thing is true. It's as long as they feel welcomed and invited, that's where people will gravitate. Yeah, it's so interesting to look at like human connection and just our interest in being in a group with one another and how that can lead us down these quote unquote rabbit holes that, you know, connect us with people where we're like, either I completely change my life and completely lose everybody I've grown to love and to care for over all these years, or I just stay in, I just deal with it. I put like the kind of the the weird things that you're like, oh, this is a little weird. I just put them in the back of my mind. And it's so interesting how we as humans do that. And it's so natural. It's like nothing wrong with doing that because it's a natural part of human nature to want to fit into these groups. And it's so kind of interesting to see how it ebbs and flows when it comes to situations like, you know, conspiracy and like <laughs> what is and isn't true. So it's, I, I definitely get you. It's, it's really interesting to think about. Yeah. The, um, one of the, uh, two of the hosts of, um, spirituality are cult survivors themselves. Okay. And there was one episode where Matthew Remsky, who I think he said was in two different cults, really gets into how his family got him out of one. Um, and, you know, the the amount of personal connection and trust that's required to someone who does go really deep into those is it's so huge. It's kind of exhausting to think about when you think about how many millions of people believe in, for example, QAnon. Yep. And you think, you know, what could you do at scale to change that? I mean, not anything really, you know, nothing scales. It's all about that personal connection. Um, like I've got a neighbor who hopefully will never listen to this, uh, but, she, you know, we've known each other for years. Uh, she's a lovely person. I take care of her garden when she's gone. We used to take care of her horse and she's a hospice nurse and a total anti-vaxxer. And the last couple years, she's been trying to get me to read RFK Jr.'s book and, you know, starting to mention things about the COVID vaccine and, you know, did I actually vaccinate my kids? And it's just, you know, it's it's taking those big conspiracies and thinking about how do I work with this in a person in my daily life? You know, we're, we mm -hmm. each other, well, across the street from each other, but I can't, you know, it's not a radio show I can turn off. It's not something that's happening in some other country. It's right in front of me. And so it, it, it is interesting to think about, you know, what it takes to build trust and connection with people despite massive differences in belief like that. No, I think that's a good point. And I want to save it because this is exactly the type of conversation that we're going to get into here. <laughs> but this first story is from Coda Story, written by Isabel Cockrell, February 23rd, 2023. Plans for a more walkable, bikeable Oxford Anger conspiracy theorists. Sometimes two extremist political factions, each with their own set of conspiracy mythologies, meet at the picket line and create a hybrid Frankenstein's monster of a fringe group. We saw it happen when the Reichsenberger conspiracy theorists who believed Germany should go back to the monarchy of the 1870s met up with the anti-vaccine adherents during their campaign against the COVID lockdown. And it was a sort of a conspiracy theorist meet-cute. This time, the two extremist lovebirds were the Anti-Bike Brigade and the QAnon New World Order Anti-Vaccine Adherents. It would almost be heartwarming if it wasn't so disturbing. The anti-bike movement is furious about the transformation of European cities into green, low-emission zones where they can't drive their cars. Meanwhile, the QAnon types are convinced that the world is in the midst of a great reset in which we would be permanently confined to our homes. So when the historic British city of Oxford introduced a new plan to make the center of town more walkable and bikeable, both groups kicked off. The city council proposed creating more 15-minute neighborhoods, an urban planning term that aims to develop cityscapes where 
everything you need is a quarter hour walk away and where cars become redundant for shorter journeys. But the two groups saw the plan as a dystopian ploy to keep us all locked inside. James Stafford, 37, a British campaigner for bike infrastructure, posted a video on his TikTok about the protest. This is what 15-minute city protesters in Oxford are protesting against, he said, posting idyllic videos of walking cityscapes. In another video, James left the caption, this is what they want, over nightmarish footage of traffic gridlock and huge Walmart parking lots. Stafford said he watched as the anti-15-minute city campaign started a simple opposition to low-traffic neighborhoods and morphed into people talking about Nazi ghettos and open prisons. A truly bizarre reaction to one city council's plan to make buses run faster and travel feel safer. So just to, for listeners and kind of people that are reading this article and even kind of the the, the writer of this article herself, to be clear and avoid any confusion, uh, as seems to be the case with this story, Oxford City Council approved a 20-year urban development plan last year to create 15-minute cities. However, these uh, the demonstrators, there's about 2,000 of them, seem to have confused that plan with a recent plan from the Oxfordshire County Council to reduce through traffic within the city by proposing a low-traffic neighborhood, or LTN, which would divide the city into zones that can't be crossed by car unless you have an exemption passes, which would be given to residents of the city. So as someone who spends much of your time kind of discussing these ideas, walkable cities, what did you find important in how you share your information and connect with others on your message. So from my understanding, first of all, the, the, the whole idea of 15-minute cities came from a TED Talk from Professor Carlos Moreno in 2016. And I, I don't think he coined the idea, maybe the term. Uh, when I first got interested in walking, it's at least 10 years ago, I was living in this rural area where I had to drive absolutely everywhere. Like there was, there was nowhere I could could walk at all. Um, and I had small children. And so it was just every day was a nightmare. Um, and I remember starting to think like, what, you know, what I really like, and what I think everybody should have a right to is to be able to get to a certain group of services or needs yep. within, say, a 10 minute walk. I, I didn't think 15 minutes, but you know, 10 minutes. And it was like, I think my list was playground, school, post office, milk, and a coffee shop, like as a bonus, you know, <laughs> and a library, you know, it's just this, this small list of what would really make your life feel good if you could walk there safely and easily. Mm -hmm. So people know from my understanding, the original, uh, conspiracy theory that was formed around that 15-minute cities idea came from Jordan Peterson, which I, I have to say I just read in someone's um, substack a while back. So I don't know if he was the first person who came out and said that's a conspiracy theory, but um, I like to mention it because the writer called him Canada's weepiest man. And I, <laughs> it's I just, a little true, a little truth to <laughs> that. I really appreciated that. <laughs> so it, it, it's interesting. You're coming at the topic of walking from actually the opposite end of where most people ask me about it. This this is tends to be the end point of like, what can walking give us? What can walkability give us? How does it make our lives richer? From a research standpoint, there's a ton of research about walkable communities and social capital or neighborliness. Eric Kleinenberg, who's a professor at Columbia, I might be. Eric is currently a professor at New York University, but has written for Columbia University Press. Um, misremembering that, but he's a sociology professor, I think. And he originally studied in the mid-1990s, this heat wave in Chicago, where which neighborhoods had had the most deaths, you know, the most suffering. Mm -hmm. Interesting thing he found was it wasn't based on wealth. It was based on this idea of social capital, of neighborliness. 
So two neighboring neighborhoods had basically the same socioeconomic status, and one had a much higher death rate in the heat wave than the other. And what he found was that the infrastructure was very different. So Auburn, Gresham, I think, was the neighborhood that had done much better. And there you still had things like, you know, public parks, sidewalks, people knew each other, Mm -hmm. um, they knew whom to check up on. So the idea of walking and walkability connected to how resilient your community is, is, has actually been researched and, and shown for quite a long time. How I personally connect with people uh, around this idea has become much more complicated over the years. Um, you know, I did write a book about it, and I'm really grateful when people read it and they write me and they tell me that they've been going for more walks. But it, it more and more every year, I it, it's demonstrated to me how tied Americans and Canadians, you know, North Americans in general, are to our cars and how big a part of people's identity that is. Um, I was on the War on Cars podcast last year, I think, and uh, one of the things I said to them, which I've been saying a lot, is that, you know, part of part of our barrier here to creating a walkable world is that when people think about going somewhere, they don't think about themselves as using their car. They think of themselves as their car. So when you're trying to change the way parking is done to make you know, it's safer for kids to walk and bike to school. Or if you're trying to change intersections, people object strongly, not because they hate walking so much, but because they identify with their cars and they think that wherever they want to go, their car should be able to go. Mm -hmm. And that makes it really, really difficult. And you get this all across the political spectrum. You know, it's not, I think the conspiracy theory tends to be a little (laughs) more right wing, uh, at least (laughs) No, I think that's I think that's very fair to say this is right extremist viewpoint that I mean, especially during COVID, these lockdowns that the government's going to lock us down that the government's trying to control where and when we go. And I mean, obviously, there are examples. I mean, what happened in China, China did have very severe lockdowns. Mm -hmm. But that's China. That's a different demographic. That's a different culture. That's a different government. Here in the US, it's, it's much different. It's much more open. It's much more free. And Could that happen? I mean, yeah, sure, maybe. I'm not going to say no, but looking at how we view our government, how we view our people, yeah, sometimes it's a little, you know, screwed up, but we allow that freedom to make your own choice and to, you know, if you want to get, for example, if you want to get a vaccine, you can. If you don't, you don't have to. Obviously, there are risks if you don't, but you still have that choice. And I think a lot of countries that these conspiracy theorists are trying to compare to didn't have that choice. I mean, comparing it to the Nazi ghettos is fucking insane. Like, that's so far out there. That's like, yeah, sure, you know, these World War II ghettos existed, but (laughs) having a 15-minute walkable city or having these low-traffic neighborhoods are not precursors to that. Yeah. And I think that's where the identity thing comes in. Um, I think a lot about identity and how much... um, how much it determines how people think, how they'll vote, what they hear about. Um, I, I think that's true of all of us. I said to a friend just the other day, I, you know, I, I'm not sure if there's anything people will fight for harder than to protect their sense of identity. Um, and in North America, unfortunately, cars have really, <laughs> really saturated us. You know, I, I do think in, in Europe, um, lockdowns were also more severe. My husband's from England Mm -hmm. and my mother-in-law, you know, is still there in Nottingham in England, which is a wonderfully walkable city, by the way, with great public transportation. And, and I remember reading some essays out of Spain and Italy and, you know, I can understand this sense of enforced confinement that maybe didn't feel necessary. It's harder for me to comment on that partly because I do live in a small town in Montana 
you know, most of my writing friend, well, my writing group, I guess, um, like some, one of them's in New York city and she lives in a 500 square foot apartment with a family of five, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and getting outside and being able to go for walks and having to share space with people is an entirely different proposition for her than it is for me who lives in a town of 7,000 some surrounded by millions of acres of wilderness, you know, and, and our public spaces weren't closed. Um, our governor at the time was a Democrat, and um, we did go through through lockdown very smartly. You know, our, our hospitals were were overwhelmed, and we don't have a lot of them. It is a rural state, uh, and but I wouldn't say that we necessarily felt that sense of of confinement. Yeah, like that's one of those things when you can really compare, let's take public transport, for example, when you look at, you know, what's going on in the EU versus, you know, here in the US, obviously, the EU, a, a lot of history there. So a lot of these buildings were built before cars became this booming of a thing. But the US was, I mean, we're still young enough to where a lot of our culture, a lot of our city was built around the cars. I mean, they used to have uh, these traveling car shows, Motoramas, where, you know, all these big auto industry makers would go around and say, this is the future. This is what you need to do. If you want to traverse across the U.S., you need a car to do so. Mm-hmm. And that has led to very poor um, investment of our public transport. I mean, I think Biden's infrastructure bill had like $20 billion set aside for public transport. But like even – like this is an interesting fact that I found. The EU spends one point one trillion dollars, which is made up of twenty seven member states, uh, on public transport a year, where the US spends two hundred and fifty billion. Obviously they're roughly the same size in land mass. The EU has a uh, hundred million more residents, but the fact that that's almost five times as much money being spent on public transport in the EU, obviously you look at the EU and you say, wow, they have really good public transport compared to the US where we have a uh, a light rail here in Minnesota that goes throughout the city, but it's filled with crime. I mean, just this year in general, crime is up 66%, which is crazy. It's like, I want to use public transport. I want to move away from using my car. Yeah, you would love to be able to bike to work, to you know walk to work, but most jobs... Uh, I think the average commute in America is about 45 minutes. The average commute to and from work in the U.S. is 55 minutes. But we need to kind of refocus our urban planning to make sure that's viable. And at the current moment, it's not. So that actually gets to the center or the heart, I think, of what we're talking about or what I talk about Mm -hmm. uh, in my book in particular. One of the things that really got me to write a book about walking was um, over and over and over, you hear the same stories. It's like Thoreau and um, Emerson and Darwin and Einstein. And it's all these thinkers, right? Usually men, Um, you know, and here's how they took walks and here's how they saw the world. And I started getting really frustrated because I felt like the conversations and the writing, the literary writing, writing about walking dead-ended, and it excluded, it continues to exclude, I think, so many people, most people. And when I talked to my publisher, I said, you know, I really want to write a book for a single mom who's working two jobs. I want to write a book for you know, someone like my husband, who at the time was commuting uh, almost an hour to work on the New York State Thruway every day. Uh, and comes home and is tired and doesn't want to go for a walk, you know, even if we had had that infrastructure, um, you know, just wants to watch TV. I I wanted to write a book for what I call the every walker. Mm -hmm. So in the process of doing that, what I kept finding was uh, I had to talk about the barriers because those are huge. And it's something that 
it frustrates me about the literary world in general and publishing, which is that people want to write and read about the, the nice things and different ways of looking at the world, but they don't really want to grapple with the messy policy and infrastructure legacies that make it almost impossible for most people to live the way they're recommended. So when I first started writing about walking, what kept striking me was the question of freedom. And because we're talking about, you know, American identity and how you can get places in your car and what your choices are, what I kept running into was, wait a second, if I can't leave my, I lived in upstate New York at the time, if I can't leave my house and get milk or take my kid to a playground or get my mail without getting into a car, strapping my kid in and driving somewhere and assuming I have that ability and 30% on average of uh, driver eligible people in America do not have the ability to drive. Uh, how free am I? How free are any of us if everything we need to do or want to do in our lives is absolutely dependent on this industry, the car industry, the oil industry, and on our tax dollars going to support all of the infrastructure that makes that industry possible. And then when you look back into the history of it, you, you mentioned at the beginning that you've been kind of deep diving. Have you come across Peter Norton, who wrote Fighting Traffic? I have not, no. Uh, he is, um, he's done so much of the work on the history of cars and roads in America. It's really central to to understanding any of it. Um, and he's a, he's a great guy to talk about this stuff. Okay. And he, he wrote a book called Fighting Traffic. And it, it really gets into the early history of cars in America. So post-World War I, like in the four years afterwards, more people died in car crashes than had died in the actual war. And people hated cars. They did not want cars in their cities. They did not want cars on the roads. Um, there is a fantastic little like six-minute video from San Francisco, or I think it's 10 minutes, in 1906 that is just a camera mounted on a streetcar. And it's just going down Market Street, I think it was. Um, if you watch that video, what you see is that the road is a free-for-all. It is a public place. It's a public space. There are kids running across it. There are, you know, women with their bustly long dresses. Um, there's cars, there's horses, and nobody is doing that thing that we do when we cross the road where we like glance side to side, like, am I safe? Am I mm -hmm. safe? They're just using the road. To take that away from Americans took an enormous investment and amount of time and money and political capital. The car industry, you know, created think tanks, they invested money. And of course, the think tanks started to create research that supported cars. And then the people who were in those think tanks made their way into government. Stop me if this sounds familiar to some, you know, certain <laughs> ways. <laughs> I mean, if, yeah, if you're getting to how the the car industry made jaywalking illegal. I, yeah. Yes. And, and that's exactly, you know, jaywalking was invented by the car industry as part of this huge campaign to shove normal people off of what is a public space and make that exclusive to people who owned and drove cars. And part of the reason is, you know, you can't sell cars if you're not selling the story of freedom that they bring because mm. sitting in traffic is freaking miserable. It is, it is just, it's horrible. You know, you talk about um, crime on, on public transportation. Well, like 40,000 people die in car crashes in the U.S. every year. And some 6,000 of those are pedestrians and cyclists mm -hmm. that, that dwarfs 
so many other causes of deaths in this country. But it just, it fascinates me that the car industry was successful over the decades in forcing Americans to adopt their product, which is really expensive to own and to run and for the whole public to invest in, you know, talking about the roads and the parking and the infrastructure. And then somehow we come out the other end of it thinking that that is what we wanted and that that is freedom. And it never was and it never has been and it's not going to be. You know, you, you can't have a community that's for people and for cars, because at some point you have too much traffic. Well, yeah, it's so interesting. Just about that no, right no, I, th- I think it's a lot of very good points that you're making. It's so interesting how the marketing of these car industries have ingrained themselves in society. I mean, even from 2021, uh, as far as car lobbying goes, GM spent nine million, Toyota six million, Hyundai one point two million. So obviously, these car industries see the importance of making sure. Being a part of America is having a car. It's like, you know, you see those like truck commercials and you're like, you're not a real man. You're not a real American unless you have a truck. (laughs) And it's like, it works. It obviously works because, you know, the amount of cars we see. I mean, the fact that we're continuing to widen roads, widen, widen, widen roads. We're making bigger trucks. We're making bigger cars. We're making... Uh, I know you talk in your book about, you know, people not being able to use sidewalks in the same way, uh, you know, especially for people in wheelchairs. And it's becoming this this thing in society where it's like, I understand the U.S. is a big freaking place, man. Like, that's a lot of like my international <laughs> friends are like, oh, I'm going to go to San Francisco. I'm going to go to Las Vegas. I'm going to go to New York. And I'm like, how, how long are you planning to stay? Five days. I'm like, no, you can't. You can't do that. You know, because we've built our society around cars, the need for cars. I like how you talked about like, sure, does cars give us our freedom or do they really confine us to having to use cars, to having to live in car centric cities? Could we get to a point where we have these 15 minute neighborhoods across America uh, or even just being able to go from 60 minute cities to 40 minute cities to 30 minute cities, I think would be a big win. Mm -hmm. But how do you compete with the amount of money that's being put into, you know, lobbyists that are saying, no, we shouldn't do that. Let's keep doing this car thing. Let's keep, you know, (laughs) using all this um, fossil fuels to uh, power these cars, all these things that we should be making the switch to this more safer urban development. And we have been, you know, to be fair, urban planning has naturally been moving towards mixed use compared to uh, the earliest 20th century where we're doing single use. But how long is that going to take to get to a point where people do feel safe walking around their cities and around their neighborhoods without fearing getting run over by a gigantic freaking truck that says, I'm America? Yeah, we have a lot of those, right? Especially during COVID, like the, the number of people who moved to Montana, um, especially the the Western area in the mountains where I live, it's just mm-hmm. enormous. And they all need to buy a truck, you know, and um, then they put the these iron cross cow catcher bumper <laughs> things on the front. And, you know, one of these things is barreling down at you. And, and I'm like, this is... This is absurd. And they all buy cowboy hats, which is really funny because my, my mom grew up on a ranch in eastern Montana. You know, her family were homesteaders mm-hmm. and like nobody wears a cowboy hat. They all wear, you know, caps from the seed company. <laughs> it's just it's one of those identity things where it's like, OK, cosplay. Yeah. Or little, little well, whatever. do you see, I mean, <laughs> these obviously not maybe the 15 minute walkable cities, but the concept of. You know, these walkable cities, walkable neighborhoods where, you know, you have 
kind of everything you need within like a, a, a walkable space, you know, whether it be hospitals, grocery stores, schools, uh, your work, do you see that as a possibility here in the US? Or is it kind of, you know, a future dream that we really need to start pushing, you know, to get towards? Uh, yes, and yes. <laughs> you know, it, it feels hopeless a lot of times, mostly because of that identity thing. So I am on the bike and pedestrian committee of the city council in my hometown. Um, and I'm on the board of parks. And I have been working on walkability within my town for years. And especially there's this whole issue around the elementary school and the traffic and drop off. That's like this little knot in the middle of a lot of it because the elementary school is on a dead end road. And so people have to come in and circle out again to, to get. So it gets really clogged. And one of the things that makes me super pessimistic and has for years is the number of people I know who like identify as progressive and liberal and have all these values and yet really do not see that they should ever have to give up their right to be able to drive their kid to the front door of the school easily without having to wait in a traffic jam and be delayed. You know, until people, I guess I want to say people of privilege who can make that choice, start making that choice, it's going to be harder to see more movement um, in a lot of communities. On the other hand, I follow a lot of um, urban planning and infrastructure and walkability and public transportation people, um, you know, newsletters and podcasts and um, people like Strong Towns, Chuck Marone, who, you know, someone out there's listening is probably familiar with. That kind of work is really inspiring because the places where this is happening are places you don't expect. Chuck Marone talks about, you know, a lot of the work being done in mid-sized cities you've you know, maybe never heard of. Like you need to stop thinking about the really big urban areas and how do you fix them and look at what more independent maybe places are, are just choosing to do for various reasons. I went to Denver to research for my book, uh, you know, because in addition to not wanting to talk about Thoreau, whom I mentioned exactly <laughs> once, just to stop anybody writing me and say, hey, have you ever mm -hmm. heard of Thoreau? <laughs> in addition to not wanting to retread that ground, so to speak, um, I wanted to widen the geography. You know, so many books are New York centric. The whole publishing industry is New York centric. And like, I just, it's a big country, as you said. So I, originally, um, I was writing about Seattle, but the mayor there ended up being pretty unsavory after being very pro-public uh -huh. transport and pro-walkable. And I'm like, I can't include this person. It was, it was really bad, actually. Um, so I ended up in Denver. And Denver is doing some really interesting things around walking and walkability. Now, they're, they're kind of lucky because they have some legacy infrastructure. When the city was originally designed, um, the original city platters have like this whole plan of a city of parks that were connected. So I think there is some embedded infrastructure that make, makes it a little bit more accessible to make it walkable. But the key has been a couple of um, walking advocate groups, just ordinary people who live there and care about their community. Um, one of them is Jonathan Stalls, who had walked across the country for eight months. Um, he just came out with a book last year called Walk, which is really lovely. And as part of his book tour, he's still walking various places around the country. He's just about, about to start on the Oregon coast. People can join him. He started a group called Walk to Connect. And then uh, there's another group called um, Girl Trek which is national. And it was started by two African-American women who, one of them was a teacher and she was looking at the health statistics of um, African-American women. She used the term African-American in her TED talk, I think. 
in the U.S. and just found it really depressing. Like she said, I can't look out at these girls that I'm teaching and think about, you know, what their health prospects are right now. So they started taking girls walking and they extended it to getting black women to walk 30 minutes, five days a week. And these are locally based, locally led. Um, I find Girl Trek probably the most inspiring group in the entire country, maybe, um, on, on almost anything, because a lot of their work is about that personal health, about like respecting yourself and, and working towards your health and, you know, empowerment and community building at the same time. So I walked with a girl truck group in Denver, um, who were just amazing and could have written part of my book for me in like a week because they really got it. When I walked with a group through the parks, um, you know, one thing I have to say, I um, people don't like it when I say this, but the group that I walked with through the parks was all white um, and they were all like retired or near retired, fairly liberal and PR listeners. And when I met them, I was like, OK, these are the people who buy books like, you know, these are the, probably need to connect with them. And they asked me what I was working on. And I told them and I, I explained what the different aspects of the book were. And I said social justice. And they said, what does social justice have to do with walking? And I was like speechless and I spent the next two hours trying to think about how I could get this group of people who think they care about social justice, but see it as an abstract thing that maybe mm. doesn't connect with their daily lives yeah. and the way that their life and their community is built. And then I walk with the girl track group and they, you know, they knew it all already, of course. And so these groups connect with the city council and with the Colorado Department of Transportation, and they take them on these walking audits and they show them where the issues are. And, and the thing is that most of these policies are written and passed and enforced by people who don't walk in their daily lives. Mm -hmm. They don't, or, or bike, you know, and, and by the way, when I say walking, I do include wheelchairs also. Um, I try to make that clear at the beginning of the book because that's very important to me. It, it, it is so hard to understand the difficulties in using that as transportation if you aren't experiencing it. Um, and there's a woman, Tamika Butler, who used to, oh, what did she used to run? It was like bike Los Angeles something. It was the Los Angeles County Bicycle Coalition. But she just gets really deep into, you know, as a black woman, here is how I experienced trying to get around my city and other cities and other areas. The people who are making these policies don't experience the way the world mm -hmm. the way I do for the most part. And if they don't take my experience into account, then they are going to build this world and the infrastructure and laws, you know, and policing laws um, in ways that exclude my needs and my mm -hmm. experiences. And that's just so important. And, and so there are all these groups all over the country, actually, who are working on these things locally. And, and that's why, you know, in my Substack, I, um, I really try to share like podcasts and articles and, and things that, that focus on what people are doing in places that are unexpected, because I think that's where people find hope and they find inspiration and they find engagement. You know, you get involved with your local community. You don't go to Boston or San Francisco um, to figure out what you're doing wrong or what you need to do right. You get to know your local community and its needs and then you can start working on these things. And it's going to look different everywhere. You know, the, yes, it's yep. not, you know, you talked about um, the green line. Is, is the green line in um, the Twin Cities? Uh, the, yep, like, the green line. Uh, the Yep. 
because I, I interviewed the um, some of the people who were instrumental in getting a stop added to is it Little Mekong down? To, I don't know. Um, but I'm originally, not exactly sure, but yeah, it was going to bypass this this one community that was historically black, and then um, was a lot of immigrants from um, East Asia or mm-hmm. South Asia. Um, and the Green Line, the light rail, was going to bypass that community. It wasn't going to stop there. It was just going to run through it. And so that is a continuation of the highway legacy. You know, all these highways across the country that destroyed historically black especially neighborhoods mm-hmm. um, in order to make highways that made it easier for white suburbs. Yeah. And, and they were, these were segregated. You could only buy in them if you were white and, and destroying just tons of neighborhoods and social capital and economic capital and everything in the process. And so this was kind of continuation of that because you're talking about building a rail line through a neighborhood and then not serving that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So they they engaged in a very granular and specific and local and national campaign to get a stop added on the Green Line because the people who lived there would use it to get mm-hmm. to work at other places. You know, it takes an enormous amount of energy and it takes commitment to your local community to make that happen. Well, yeah, it takes politicians who actually take the time, local politicians, and that's why I say local uh, elections are vastly more important than, you know, the big elections. Obviously, those have importance. But when it comes to what's going on in your local community, it's important that your local politicians know who the heck is in that community. Because as Mm -hmm. I said, the US is a melting pot of every single culture from every single corner of the world. And you're going to get small areas of that within your city, within your town, within your community. And you need to understand how that plays into the bigger factor of how, you know, laws are put in place, how as you're saying, you know, how roads are built, how, you know, tra- public transportation is built. I like that you talked about like legacy infrastructure, you know, like a lot of the times we look at what has happened here in the U.S. as we've built, you know, uh, residential infrastructure. We talk, we can talk about like redlining and basically saying, hey, let's not give loans to these people because they're in a high risk area. Well, if you put people in that area and they can't create wealth through property, I mean, yeah, the, the area is not going to turn out the same way you would if you can get high or low interest loans in another area to majority white people. But it's so interesting how the amount of healthy walks are available in a city, in a town. Minnesota is the land of 10,000 plus lakes. And there are so many good walking trails. But if you didn't really realize that if you lived in the cities, if you lived in Minneapolis, St. Paul, you might not realize the amount of green space that is available if you go just five, 10 minutes outside of your normal you know, way of living. And I think that's important that you kind of get outside mm-hmm. of your your bubble. But then also I thought it was really interesting how, you know, we've been talking about how these this idea of the car has been built into the American identity. But I like how you talk about, you know, the importance of the walking identity. You talk about refugees walking to asylum, protesters mobilizing, pilgrimage for uh, religious reasons. Like these are all things that are a part of our identity as a people that are built around walking. And it's so important. So if we can build you know, that we can continue to build it out into the future. We can continue to build it into our cities and how we live and how we, you know, go about our everyday. But at that same time, we need to make sure that our politicians are actually interacting with us and we're actually saying these things and we're making sure we're heard regardless of how much capital it takes, regardless of how much energy it takes. And I know, obviously, everyone's not... able to give the same capital and energy, but there needs to be a a active presence in making sure our local politicians represent 
the local community. And I think that's sometimes missing here in the U.S. because it's, it's, it's kind of going back to what you're saying. It's somebody else's problem. It's not my problem. You know, I don't want to give up a bit of my comfort so more people can be comfortable. But that should be how we look at the situation. I'm willing to give up a bit of my comfort so more people are comfortable than just myself, my family, my friends. The world's bigger than just that. Yeah. And, and you know, that's, that's another core identity issue in the U.S. that we have that <laughs> – that's sort of hyper-individualism, you know, which is another yeah, thing. Mm-hmm. It makes me super pessimistic. And and it's not when even... I, yeah, like when you look at a car, it's like, I mean, I know they have those graphics where like 40 people can fit in a bus, but then mm-hmm. one person can fit in a car. And it's like, like, it's like, oh, yeah, this is my car. This is me. This is me on the road. This is one person on the road. But really, you're sharing this with tons of people that need to get to where they need to go every single day. Yeah, I heard um, Corey Doctorow. Uh, I don't know if you ever read him. I'm no. kind of... A- big fan. He's, uh, gosh, I don't even know how to describe his writing. Like he writes science fiction books and he also writes anti-capitalist stuff. And, um, he's super prolific. Like he writes on medium and a whole bunch of other places like daily. I don't know how he does it. Um, (laughs) but he was on the war on cars too. And he just had, I think it was him who said this. He had this line, he says, geometry hates cars and our population around the world is going up and you just can't fit more cars Mm -hmm. in that space. Like you're just, it, it's not, this is the real physical world. It's just, well, yeah. And it's like, it's, 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 not it's separating us. Yeah. And yeah, you have that quote, you know, we're spending more time sedentary and alone than ever before. It, it's true. It's like, if we are not taking public transport, if we're not interacting with our community members, if we're just staying in our car, we're driving from point A to point B, not interacting with anyone along the way, we're going to be more alone than ever before, as you say. Yeah. It, it's, you know, if you're commuting to work, and, uh, I mean, this was kind of my life in upstate New York, or I should mm-hmm. say my husband, like I, I've, I've worked from home for 20 years. I'm a copy editor. Um, but he would, you know, our car was in the garage and he would get in the car in the garage, drive to work and park inside. And like, I would have to be like, D- you know, if you break down, you will want to cope, you know, <laughs> and he <wouldn't> <laughs> Like it's winter, you know, it's cold just because you're inside doesn't mean you aren't going to interact with the world at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of people live like that. And I was thinking, I I think I had this passage in the book, like if you're doing that and you're like only interaction is with someone at Starbucks, you know, through the drive through how does that affect your mental health? Mm -hmm. And and I'm not saying there's research on that. It's just something I think about a lot. Um, I'm really interested in our embodied experiences. You know, there's more and more research now about how our understanding of the world and uh, comes through our bodies, not through initially through the mind. Uh, And that research, I think is only, it's like scientifically, it's only just starting, even if, if people have known it for a long time. But, um, you know, I, I know a lot of people complain about, you know, AI and algorithms and social media. And, and I'm with that. I'm, I'm totally with that separation and the problems it creates. Um, and I get hung up though, because they can't seem to see cars as part of that same continuum. Mm. And I do, I see that as one of the first big separations between us, you know, which then, as we've been talking about, led to infrastructure that separated even more. Um, and I do, I really wonder what that does to our psyches and our sense of community and our sense of interconnectedness and um, interdependence, which is real, whether we want it to be or not. You know, yeah. it's. I think that's a perfect that. segue into introducing who the heck you are. I'd like to welcome <laughs> to the show, essayist and author of the book, A Walking Life. 
Antonia Melchik, A Walking Life delves into the past and future of walking's significance in our shared humanity, exploring its profound impact on our physical and emotional well-being, and above all, obviously, the art of getting lost. Antonia, welcome to Water Cooler Talk. Thank you so much. It is a great pleasure to be here. So getting into kind of what you were just saying, uh, but... I just got to set you up here because we're both fans of the Lord of the Rings. And oh. I think it's only fair that we spend the next 10 hours discussing the most important aspect of the saga, the amount of walking done by each character. So it's estimated <laughs> that Sam and Frodo's journey covered approximately 1,350 miles, about 2,172 kilometers, from the Shire to Mount Doom in their quest to destroy the One Ring. However, beyond the realm of Tolkien... I want to ask about your experiences in understanding the benefits, as you're kind of talking there, the benefits of walking for physical and mental well-being. I'd rather just talk about Lord of the Rings. (laughs) (laughs) I finally, I had oral surgery last year and I forced my girlfriend to watch the extended editions back to back to back and she ended up loving it. So there you go. That's awesome. I I can't get my kids into it, which is like heartbreaking for me. (laughs) My older sister gave me The Hobbit when I was eight years old Mm -hmm. um, and then The Lord of the Rings afterwards. And I, up until a certain point, um, in my 30s, I read them at least once a year. They have been extremely <laughs> pivotal in my life. Um, but no, yeah, obviously they walk a lot. Obviously, hobbits are like built to walk better. But I do think there's also that, no cars. That's true. Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <There's> no, cars. <laughs> no cars. There's also like, orcs and you know no scary eyes. So and magic. Um, but Pippin did get rides with an ent. That's true. They cheated um. a little bit. <laughs> but I've heard you talk about kind of obviously the physical mental well-being of walking and the importance of it. And I know you mentioned a study, I think it was like a Danish study. Uh, They do like yearly experiments and it talked about like the well-being of kids, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. But I do see that there is importance to maybe not just walking per se, but moving, just moving in general and not living this life of just sitting at our chairs in front of our computers on the couch, watching, you know, TV, watching Netflix, watching Max, I guess it's called now. But there is importance to moving just I think the biggest, obviously, outside of the physical realm is the mental well-being of just getting out, moving around, being I mean, we're evolved into being these bipedal, you know, uh, species that are supposed to move. And it's mm-hmm. it's so crazy how that's changed. Now we're moving towards this. Um, oh my gosh, what's that? I completely blanked. What's that one movie with the robot? He cleans up all the trash on Wally. Earth? Wally, yeah, Wally <laughs> sitting in these chairs, you know, having everything at our disposal. I mean, sure, would that be cool and make life a lot easier? Yeah, but that's not that's not the way we want to go. Ho- hopefully not. Earth looks in pretty bad <laughs> shape. <laughs> Uh, well, let's start there with Wally. Um, that, hopefully, I'm not spoiling it for people. I've watched it's, it a bunch of times. I really enough. like it. Like, <laughs> if my kids can't pick a movie for you know movie night, I, you know, it's either The Dark Crystal or Wally. So mm-hmm. they're pretty good about picking because they're sick of those. Um, but <laughs> so th- there's this pivotal point right when the captain rebels against the robot who's not Hal from 2001: A Space Odyssey, but it's obviously based on Hal mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, uh, as he's rebelling, and what is he doing? He is standing up. You know, that is his moment of claiming the freedom of himself to make decisions and the people on the ship to live the way they want. Now, um, biologically, these people have lost so much bone density. 
I don't think he would be able to stand up. And then they go back to Earth and I'm like, how are you dealing with the gravity? Like, it just doesn't. Um, I really like the TV show, The Expanse. Um, I read the books, but I like the show more. Dealing with those things, like how the human body changes in space is something that's really interesting to me. Slight tangent. It's related because there's been research (laughs) on astronauts and, you know, the lack Mm -hmm. of gravity and what that does to your bones and proprioception, which is your uh, ability to feel where your body is in the space around you. Like, that's why we don't walk into doorways because of proprioception. Um, So... The book starts, I start chapter one with paleoanthropology. It's with our evolution. Um, And you're going back like at least six million years to this one skull that's six million years old that has a hole in the back of the skull that looks like it might demonstrate that this species, whatever it was, um, whoever they were, uh, walked upright at least some of the time. And that's very, very loose science. I don't want to you know, say that that's an absolute thing. But the, 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 the paleoanthropological history of hominin species going to bipedal upright walking is really fascinating. Um, I'm into deep time and geology. I, I love that kind of thing. I wanted to be a paleontologist when I grew up. <laughs> I grew up in Indiana Jones and I thought being an archaeologist would be the coolest thing ever. Similar, you know, it's like finding old stuff. That's so cool. Um, anyway, it, it's when you start reading about that and really getting into it, I don't know, for me, I start feeling it in my own body, that that evolutionary history, that evolutionary legacy. You know, to me, that that means something. Like, why did we evolve to walk bipedally? And what does it mean when we lose it? You go into that. I interviewed uh, Jerry, Jerry De Silva, who's a paleoanthropologist at Dartmouth, and he is a great guy. He came out with a book of his own a couple of years ago. I think it's called The First Steps. And it's such a fun book if you're into that kind of thing. It's about mm-hmm. all these different fossils and, and the bipedal walking aspects of, of each of them. But then, you know, you get into these connections of, well, how do babies learn to walk? So I interviewed um, Karen Adolph, who's this big infant researcher at NYU, and she's got this whole lab and studying how infants learn to walk and what happens in their brains and how much we fall down. You know, learning to walk is hard. Like, cognitively, it is so difficult. Like, why would a species evolved to do something that's actually really hard for its completely helpless infants to learn. Um, And nobody really has an answer to that. There are a lot of theories. One of the big theories um, revolve, well, not why we learn to walk, but revolves around, you know, walking led to our formation of community because um, it it both freed up our hands, but made us a little more dependent on others Mm -hmm. because, you know, four legs are a bit more stable. Um, Well, maybe that wasn't the reason, but, and when you think about that, And you think about evolution itself. This is an evolved body that you're in. It is a legacy of billions of years. You know, you don't just come out of the womb and start thinking because the people around you tell you to think a certain way or observing the world a certain way. It's not just what's in the world around you. It is all of that other stuff. And so how we interact with the world, how we feel about ourselves, how we respond to other people is all you know, evolution is part of all of that. And bipedal walking is so unique to our species that it's hard to imagine 
its relationship with all those things isn't important. You know, from the other side of that, there's been a lot of research on things like um, Alzheimer's, dementia, children's brain development, um, and how walking relates to all of those. You know, older people who walk 30 minutes a day are at lower risk of Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, there was a big study I read that I'm still kind of fascinated with about children with vestibular deficiencies. Um, the vestibular system is the inner inner ear canal that keeps our balance. Um, one thing that I still find fascinating that people forget about is we live on a spinning planet. It's moving in space and our bodies have to compensate for that. Mm-hmm. So the vestibular system is also talking to the gravitational pull of the planet all the time. That's what keeps you from falling down. And and so there's a study that kids have vestibular difficulties and how it relates to their later difficulties in learning. Because as you're learning to walk, you are learning to understand what distance is, what speed is, how your body is moving in proportion and in relation to things around you. And that relates to your later understanding of, say, math. Like, why is the number 37 more than the number 35? If you really think about that, it's I mean, it maybe seems intuitive, but Mm -hmm. it relates to how we see things in proportion, how we relate to the world in an embodied way. And even reading spatial relations, um, you know, geometry is an obvious one. Like geometry is a vocabulary for space. Uh, Understanding how our body is in that space is the first place where we understand geometry. And so how our bodies move through the world relates to how our minds work. We're so used in our society, you know, the dom- what I call the dominant society, the dominant part of our society, this isn't everybody, but the dominant part of our society is so used to this sort of disembodied head, you know, top down mm-hmm. head idea of how we exist in the world. And I think it's really important to start to get in touch with what the body Body is doing and how that affects the rest of us. Um, there's all this new research on what's called interoception, which is how your body's reactions and impulses and feelings actually create emotion. So like when we feel fear or anxiety, you know, we think of that as a head to body thing. Like I'm feeling anxious, my body's doing weird stuff. Whereas the interoception research is like your body's doing something and that gives you a feeling that your mind interprets as anxiety. I, I mean, this stuff is really complex and, yeah. and messy yeah. and kind of new research. But I think the important thing is that when we're thinking about things like mental health, physical health, we have to think about the whole mind-body system as an evolved thing. Mm-hmm. And when you look at that says, for example, that if you walk 30 minutes a day, you're at lower risk of Alzheimer's and dementia. Uh, Or there was a big study in Australia on women and depression, walking, again, just 30 minutes a day. Um, That's why Girl Trek focuses on the 30 minutes a day, because it's kind of accessible as long as you have access to walking. You know, it makes sense when you think about this whole system as an evolved thing. And then the Danish study you mentioned, uh, it was well over 10,000 kids. I can't quite remember. And that was about focus and concentration and and executive function. Mm -hmm. And it was about the difference. Uh, They studied kids who walked and biked to school versus a change in diet. And what they found was that the kids walking back to school, their focus and attention are much greater. Well, the effect on their focus and attention is greater even than if they have a change in diet. I mean, if you're depressed, if you're anxious, if you're having a, you've just had a bad argument with someone and you go for a walk, just Pay attention to what your body does mm. during that time, especially if you go for like 20 or 30 minutes. Um, I can get really depressed sometimes. Like I just want to sit in a dark room and 
watch Lord of the Rings or something, <laughs> just like hide myself away. And I have to really force myself to step outside. But if I do it, like if I just walk to my mailbox, it makes a difference. Like mm-hmm. it gets moving a little more. It gives me a better sense of perspective. Um, people who go for walks in nature have been shown to ruminate less. There was that, that book, uh, Florence Williams is the nature fix, which probably a lot of people have read and it's about being in nature. It's not specifically mm-hmm. about walking. She has some sections about walking, but you put those two things together and the effects can be really, really powerful. Yeah. I think was, there's a, the real big importance. <laughs> You're fine. I think there's a real big importance of obviously movement and like like you were saying like you don't think about it but it, it is this really complex thing that has evolved for millions upon millions upon billions of years that you know i can get up or i can walk or i can move my arms or i can you know obviously getting to a, a wheelchair accessible people be able to move my arms be able to move my head my shoulders my whole body it's something you don't really think about because it just is so natural to the human experience but when you really look at it and take the time to understand like wow this is a really complex system i mean Mm -hmm. even like early olympics were a focus on track and field because i mean humans are one of the best endurance runners in the world i mean we can chase down our prey for as long as we need to chase down our prey but it was such a focus on all of these things that are important to being a human and being a part of a society. But I feel like through all the technological advances that we've gotten in, you know, the past 20, 30 years, I mean, it hasn't been a long time. It's crazy how much it we've changed from our natural progression of this is who we are as humans to now being influenced by well, how can we make life easier? How can I move less? How can I, we literally can get food ordered to our door. I mean, we don't have to get up and cook well, and move you around. Can. And, <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Get, Some I people in the rural areas, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you can still get pizza. You know what I mean? It's like you, yeah, yeah. all these advances that I think there are a lot of positives to all these advances, but also we have to be aware of how sedentary 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 uh it's making (laughs) us as humans because just because it's making life easier doesn't mean it's making life better per se well i i think i mean that's um maybe a huger statement than you even intended it to be but to to me that's the big like go up in space and get the overview effect Mm -hmm. on on human existence um whatever type of technology you are talking about uh you know i get so tired of people saying like well you're against progress if you don't want to see whatever and i'm like no you know the luddites weren't against progress they were just saying these machines are shitty actually Mm -hmm. they make poor products and all you're doing is making more money for yourselves and putting people out of work. We don't mind technology. We mind how it's being deployed yes. and its effects mm-hmm. on human existence. Um, and so in the chapter in my book on um, disability, which was really important. To me, and, and I have to say that uh, I mentioned there's a lot of them walking out there. And I only know of one other that even really addressed disability. Um, and that bugs the heck out of me. This <laughs> makes me really angry, actually. Uh, there's two members, you know, close relatives of mine who moved through the world in wheelchairs. And so for me, it was really important that if we say bipedal walking is um, not just part of being a human, but it's like evolutionarily, you know, from an evolutionary biology perspective, that is considered one of the key things that makes us this, the species that we are is bipedal walking. Well, what does that mean if you are not moving through the world in, onto, point, yeah. in that specific way? You know, so that was really important to me. And so I think if you take that that overview look of technology and um, human existence and everything else, the important thing for me is, does this 
allow you to be in the world in the most present way possible, whatever that looks like for you. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. And, you know, there's so much of technology that we know it's, it's focused on productivity and, you know, like everyone is talking about so much about artificial intelligence right now. And it's like, it's an exhausting. Um, so the question is, does this allow you to be in the world? Does this make human life better? Does it make all life better? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what's the effect on the ecosystem of this technology? You know, like uh, going back to the car conversation, well, okay, yes, we need to get off of oil and gas. I am full on ditch the fossil fuels. Um, but electric cars have their own environmental impacts. And a lot of those are hidden from the people who are benefiting from that technology. You live yeah. in a place you know, cobalt and lithium mining, and your life is not improved by, mm-hmm. you know, electric cars and smartphones. I think it's really time that we start thinking about that. You know, with AI, what's being done with AI? It's like, well, it's going to replace writers and it's going to mm-hmm. replace artists. And I'm like, can't it replace my vacuum cleaner? Like, <laughs> why? <laughs> why? They got the, the Mr. Robot it? or the Mr. <laughs> right, right? They have that little robot that goes around the vacuums. Thing. You Roomba, know, my yeah. sister's pointed out that it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't do always stuff, work. You know, and it's got <laughs> yeah. a whole lot of other issues along with, you know, taking all of your personal information from your home. <laughs> but, it, but it's like, okay, I am not against progress. We might have different definitions of what that looks like. To Mm -hmm. me, progress looks like everybody has clean water and air and can walk wherever they want anywhere in the world. But you can't tell me that progress is deploying technology that makes a whole lot more money for a whole lot of people who are already so enormously rich is unimaginable while also taking away some of the creativity and beauty and connection and activities that make human life so meaningful. People aren't going to start, stop doing writing and doing art, Mm -hmm. but might not, we, I should say, we might not be able to make so much of a living from it. And that's just, it's, it's ridiculous. You know, in addition to being infuriating, it's also just ridiculous. That's not, that's not progress. No. And I mean, so so the whole thing is, you know, it's like, is so, you know, cars themselves, they can be useful for certain things. Do they need to be the dominant way of how we get around in the world? Well, no, that's enormously mm-hmm. destructive. You know, pollution alone, air pollution is, um, <laughs> get all into that subject. That's, that's a huge thing. You know, those particles are found in people's brains and they do not act well and they cross yeah. the fetal barrier. And there's well, I do want to get kind of into like what you're talking there toward, towards the end of what you're saying, like the commons and, you know, in your essay, Reclaiming the Ancient Roots of Ecological Citizenship, you reference oh. Kett's Rebellion, which took place in 1549 in England when Robert Kett, a farmer, decided to lead a large group of individuals who were protesting against land enclosure. Uh, basically, wealthy landowners were fencing off common grazing areas, depriving everyone else of access. What did you find important when, and obviously this will go into our next story, but what did you find important when researching these historical struggles over the commons to help kind of form your current understanding of, I mean, the modern debates around issues like land use, resource allocation, and just in general, protecting our natural world? Um, A few different things. One is land ownership and how private land ownership affects everybody else, where it came from, why we have it, what rights it includes. It's a much more complicated subject than most people think it is. I just got through, there's an app called Threadable um, that's relatively new. I don't think it's still in beta, but it's still only for iOS, but it's like a shared platform. So I did one for them last year on land ownership. I'm doing one right now on science fiction 
just a little, a little more lightweight. Um, but, uh, we did all of these readings, um, from private property law in the U S to when land private land ownership in England first came into being to something that really interests me, which is the, the charter of the forest, which is this ancient, yeah. ancient document that was companion to the Magna Carta. I think, I, I think I wrote about it in that particular essay you're I believe so, yeah. It's uh, about. 1217 by King Henry III <clears throat> yeah. of England. Yep. That one's really fascinating to me because it demonstrates the rights that people had to, I don't want to say the resources of land, but the life of land. You know, mm-hmm. the way that ports life at one time. In so many ways, we're closed off from that now. You know, it, it's people say, well, live off the land or I hunt, I forage mm-hmm. personally, I do these things, but I have access to millions of acres of public land to yeah. do it on. You know, it, it, most people don't have that. Well, why is that? Why don't we have it? Well, there's this, even in Montana, there's all these wealthy people who buy up like 300,000 acres and they'd say, well, no, you can't come on here. People accept that in America as they're like private property is bedrock to everything. And I'm like, yeah, not really. There's not really, you know, there's legal justifications after the fact for why we have private ownership in land. But there's not actually, I haven't found any way, any real initial roots of why it came about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I've read John Locke and William Blackstone and went back into trespass law in the 1200s or something like there's just no there there. And so I think we really have to start questioning what are the rights that go along with owning land? Do you have the right to shut off other people's access to survival? And on other levels, like someone, some billionaire just built a like castle basically outside of my the town I live in. Um, it's really... <laughs> Awful and infuriating. Um, and, but the worst thing about it is that I watched later uh, last year as they put up this fencing that is like right in the middle of a wildlife migration corridor. There's mm-hmm. elk up there, bears. You know, that impacts all of life. That really matters. Um, and, the, and another thing with this reading circle was really getting into tre- broken treaties and land theft in the U.S., you know the whole stolen land It's mm-hmm. in, and, and Canada um, and South America. You know, big parts of the world, whole continents, actually. Um, and it, like Nick Estes, who wrote this book, Our History is the Future, uh, you know, he makes the point in his book more than once that the whole purpose of a lot of these actions was to take land that people have been living on for tens of thousands of years and to turn it into private property. And I think that's something even in Europe, but especially in North America, we don't quite get the private property. It's not, it's not like the laws of physics. It mm-hmm. doesn't just come out of nowhere. It's something that we create and agree on supposedly as a society or is imposed on us from above. And that private property comes with certain rights. And those rights actually change over time. You did not used to have the right in the U.S. to keep people from trespassing onto your land to hunt, for example, or to forage. You do have that right now. You did not used to have the right in the U.S. to pollute a waterway in such a way that nobody else could benefit from the life that it gives. You now have that right. There's polluted waterways all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't used to be able to do that. So I find that all like, like it gets really into the weeds and really um, wonky. But I think it's really important. Like if we want a livable planet, this is something we've got to start looking at is private property rights and what, what they is mean. it's so interesting when you really i mean if you want to get into like the quote-unquote conspiracy of it but it's like <laughs> you know taking away these lands and then it's like all right well it's like now 
I don't have enough space to farm on my land to make enough food to support my family. You know, there's very harsh restrictions on having livestock. I mean, you can't even have chickens in your neighborhood without it being a big, you know, situation. I mean, what's happening with Zuckerberg and, you know, buying up all this property in Hawaii and taking it away. Um, I know there's like talks in Costa Rica. Costa Rica has all these public beaches and you're supposed to have access to the public beaches. But all these millionaires and billionaires are buying up all the space and mm-hmm. pretty much saying, hey, you need to walk 10 miles to get to the public beach. I mean, it's like they want you kind of dependent on the programs they're putting in place. So it's like I can't grow enough food or raise enough food in my own home, in my own backyard. So I have to go to grocery stores and then I have to use cars to get to that grocery store or public <laughs> transport. I have to use some way to get there. And it's, you know, obviously I think uh, there's a lot good that the government does and being able to provide for people and help people get through life. But at the same time, you also have to allow people to be people and you have to allow people to have these spaces to exist and to flourish and to be sustainable and to live a better life that's not dependent on so many infrastructures that are fucked up. I mean, there's a lot of fucked up (laughs) infrastructures that we're relying on that we live day to day to rely on. I mean, you look at what happened during COVID as far as um, the shipping and the supply chain and how that was so easily messed up and how it impacted day to day lives for a lot of people. And man, it's it's crazy that we're so dependent on the system that can break so easily. But Mm -hmm. we've been so ingrained into the system for generations upon generations upon generations that trying to work our way out of it is going to take a long time. It's going to take a lot of future generations putting in the work, but it starts today. You know, it's that I really like that quote. It says something along the lines of you don't plant a tree to enjoy the shade. You plant a tree so future generations can enjoy the shade. And that's. That's, I think, how we need to view this. Like, yeah, you know, it might not help us in the moment, but it's going to help our kids, their kids. And we need to put, obviously, in this next story, we'll talk about kind of putting profit, you know, that quick profit over the future of uh, the world. But we need to change that mindset and realize that we need to start making changes that are good for our future, not just for our bottom line today. Yeah. And there's 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 just so much to unpack in that. We could probably <laughs> talk just <laughs> another two hours, like just mm-hmm. on that subject. Yeah. But, it, but I think, you know, there's just, um, you talk about, you know, starting somewhere and I, I talk about that too. I'm like, you get, you start today. Yeah. I'm, I'm never going to live to see like, probably never going to live to see all the land given back to the native nations that I mm-hmm. would personally like to see. Um, but that doesn't mean I don't start fighting for it. You know, that my, Russian. My dad is from the Soviet Union, actually. Um, <clears throat> he grew up in Leningrad. And it's like his parents never saw the end of the Soviet Union. Like mm. his mother did. She lived for, for, I don't know, less than a year after the, the Soviet Union collapsed. But that didn't mean that they gave up their values. Mm-hmm. I think it is something, you know, especially in comfortable middle class society, it's just so easy to be like, well, I don't see change happening. Someone you else know? can worry about it. Yeah. Like I'm tired mm-hmm. and I'm tired. I'm tired of arguing with parents without driving their kids to school, you know, but, but if I don't keep doing that, if I don't keep talking with people and working with the city and doing what I can, then 30 years down the road, I'm not going to see the community around me that, and around other kids that I would like to see for them. You know, my kids won't benefit from this work necessarily, but future generations Mm -hmm. will. And that's important to me, but it, it, you know, this whole way of relating to the world, like it, it forces us to start really looking at values that we think are core to our society. Oh, like 
hard work. Let's go for hard work. Uh, there's this guy, <laughs> Peter Leinbaugh, who's uh, he's pretty radical, actually. He's um, one of the people I read about the enclosures of the commons and the Magna Carta. I find his books kind of hard to read. They're a little all over pl- the place. But if you can find YouTube okay. videos or, or interviews, um, he's done some on Frontiers of Commoning. It's really good to listen to because he, he explains his thinking. But in one of them, um, he talks about the enclosures of the commons was the invention of the job. So mm-hmm. you take away people's ability to feed themselves and you then force them to come work for you at wages that you determine. And, you know, there's a lot in that, especially for modern society. Like, as I said, I hunt and I pick berries and I do all that stuff, but most people aren't going to choose to do that necessarily. But there's that central question of freedom. Once again, what are your choices? Do you have a choice? You know, if some, a few wealthy people own all the land um, or take affordable housing, for example, you know, my town is only one in the country, much less the state of Montana, that is in affordable housing crisis. It is mm-hmm. brutal. It is really horrifying what's happening. Um, and what happens when people can't afford to live somewhere? Well, houselessness. You know, you don't have a home. You don't have a place to live. You don't have someone to crash with. And dependence. You know, I see all of these uh service providers and really wealthy vacation homeowners where I live who start importing labor, basically underpaid, you know, no people can't afford to live where they where they work where I am. And so people are like, well, we'll just bring in these guest workers and, you know, put them in this dormitory. Mm-hmm. And well, it creates that, you know, dependent situation again. And we think we're such an advanced society, but when you have people who don't have a choice about work and don't have a choice about their wages and don't really have labor rights and don't have a way to survive that isn't dependent on someone giving them a job, um, then you don't live in a free society. And we're, you know, America is just, it's so like, we just need a job and you just need to work hard. And I'm like, you know what? I like working hard. Yeah. I don't want to for you because mm-hmm. you're an ass and I don't like you <laughs> and you're not a good manager. And this I know. Is, I mean, I, I mean, eventually, <laughs> hopefully, I mean, hopefully, right. Knock on wood, you know, but I do believe in the future, there's going to be company towns, you know, where companies have you work within their town or have you work. And then it's all, all tied into how you live because it, it like makes sense from like a profit uh, sense, mm-hmm. which I mean, doesn't make sense as far as like being a good human. Um, <laughs> But I thought you had like a really good quote in your essay, We Were Never Alone, talking about living with your adult sister. But like, what's the point of learning to live well together? I do my research. I say it. Everyone's (laughs) always surprised. Uh, But what is the point of learning to live well together if we change our ecosystem beyond our species' ability to adapt? And yet, what was the point of all my plastic-saving angst if we can't learn to live well together? I think that perfectly sums up kind of what we were just talking about here. It's like, we can, you know, put in the extra work, we can do the hard work, but if we can't figure out how to live well together, what does it all matter? I mean, it matters for other life, but yeah, it, it's, I'm still stuck on that. Yeah. But yeah, I yeah, thought it was interesting. Yeah, I still struggle with it. It's, um, yeah, my, when my sister and her family moved back to our hometown, um, you know, they couldn't afford rent. So they moved in with us in this really small house and uh, it was it was hard. It was really hard for all of us. I had two kids. She had one kid and then she had another baby while we were all living together. Um, you know, and we, now we live next door to each other. She lives in that house and I live next door, uh, which is much better. We all agree. Um, <laughs> but it does, it forces you so hard to think about those questions. Like, okay, if, if I am struggling to, um, do kitchen management with my brother-in-law, who's a chef, 
you know, with family whom I love and want here and and I'm doing this because I want them to be able to live here. How can I expect people of massively different values to be able to get along? It's one of those things that like comes back to the personal. Like, how can yeah. I ask this to everyone else if I am not capable of doing it? And yet at the same time, if we, like, you know, like build communities, you know, say, I don't know. Have you ever seen the sci-fi show Eureka? I've heard um, of it, but I've not seen it. Um, it's, it's one that like, I think only maybe really hardcore sci-fi fans okay. I'm listen a to because it's not hardcore. It's it's uh it's not hardcore at all. By hardcore I mean you will watch anything sci-fi no matter how good it is. <laughs> it's just me. Um but it's this it's, it's a government town is what it is. Not a company okay. town, it's a government town. And it's this secret town, you know, it's shielded from the outside world. It's got all these scientists who are just inventing the craziest stuff. Um, but when I watch it, I do think about, okay, this is an idyllic town. It's very walkable as a, as a like ideal American town. It's got that physical feel that really I think people are wanting and look mm-hmm. for. Um, but all of the stuff they're doing in there, I'm like, where's your waste going? Did you work with the people who live in the Congo to provide you with that, you know, whatever rare mineral, you know, it's, mm-hmm. if, if we, so those people live well together in that little government town, but what is the broader environmental effect of everything they're doing? They almost destroyed the planet many, many times, you know, <laughs> Well, let's talk about not destroying the planet. But before we move on, myself and Water Cooler Talk have embarked upon a mission to give back to various parts of the community and those who helped build our show to where it stands today. For each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. And on the day of their episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guests, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we invite you, listening to this episode, to join in to help spread that message to your own personal audience. So your charity of choice for today's episode is the Flathead Warming Center. Can you share with us the significance of their work and obviously what's kind of going on with the current claims against or coming from the county commissioners? The Flathead Warming Center is a low barrier homeless shelter. So they don't like test for drug or alcohol, for example, to get in there. I did not know this until I met the person who was trying to get it off the ground, but it's a really important gap in um working with houselessness. She had opened a similar center in Bozeman, Montana, when she lived there and was trying to get one open. She doesn't live, it's in the neighboring town to mine, Kalispell, which is where my dad lives. And it's, uh, I can't remember if it's an overnight. Anyway, it, it's, it fills a gap in homelessness. And I live in this county in Northwest Montana that people wouldn't think of as having you know, anybody homeless, like people tend to associate that with, with cities, mm-hmm. but, uh, we've had a gr- really big increase over the past couple of years. There are all sorts of reasons, um, that people lose their homes or aren't able to stay in a home. There's a, another shelter, not a shelter, but there's a nonprofit locally called Sparrow's Nest that provides a house for teens who have been kicked out by their families or at risk from their families, for example, trans kids. Mm-hmm. So, she wanted to open this warming center, she calls it, uh, for years. And she was working with the local church. She was working with the police department. The police chief was always very supportive. Um, however, trying to get a neighborhood on board with a homeless shelter anywhere is really, really hard, you know. And, and um, not in my backyard, uh, folks. Yeah, yeah, it always is. 
Um, and she was running it out of the basement of a church in Kalispell for quite a while. And I know her because our sons were in fourth grade together at first, and they were they were good friends for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So I knew her at the time when she was um, starting this work, and I've always been just impressed with her dedication. You know, uh, our politics are probably very different. I know that our religious feelings are definitely different. Uh, but this is one of those things that's like, if you want a livable world, you don't have to agree with people on absolutely everything. And just her her commitment to making a place where people can go and sleep safely and be safe and, you know, have a shower and get what they need just kind of blew me away. And she finally got a kind of large donation from a local philanthropist uh, that enabled her and someone offered a building, I think it was near the county fairgrounds. And so she was finally able to open it. And I went to the opening with my family and, you know, just seeing all the people who were there, all of the faith communities, the governor's wife, I can't stand the governor. He's horrible. You know, (laughs) here we all are. A guy who ran for city council, who's like super anti-vax and was just go, now he's on the county health board, drives me crazy. (laughs) You know, he's got these stickers about like fake science and and it's just like this hard, difficult work of doing things in your community that make it better for people with people of all kinds and everybody kind of pitching in and being like, you know what, we really care about this and we care about helping people. So what happened last winter was our county commissioners, who are just the worst, they wrote an editorial talking about how the Flathead Warming Center specifically was promoting a homeless lifestyle (laughs) and making our homeless problem worse. I mean, it was just, it was so ignorant and they've doubled down. They're still really focused on it. But could you see, you know, all these people from across the political and religious spectrums writing in defense of it. And uh, there was just in the paper, was it last week or a couple of weeks ago that the warming center saw um, an increase of 73 volunteers in response to that. You know, I, I just love that this woman is doing this work, that she's so dedicated, that it's so important and that she continues to do it in the face of opposition from people who have locally way more power than they should. As you said, local elections are very important. And that it's a thing that also is drawing together all sorts of people who just care, you know, Mm -hmm. who just, they want to see people fed and housed and getting the services they need. No, I appreciate you bringing them on the show. I mean, I'm a big proponent of, I mean, I've done a lot of work within male mental health and obviously a lot of uh, homelessness and those types of situations. So anytime a guest brings on something that deals with that, I always think it's it's awesome oh, because it's, a, I mean, no one, especially in, you know, the US when we have the amount of wealth we have, no one should be without a home. It, it's just, there's no excuse for it. All right. Are you ready to jump into our final news story of the episode? Yes. This article comes from the Salt Lake Tribune by Brian Maffley, January 20th, 2023. Are trees the enemy? Some Utah lawmakers claim overgrown forests suck too much water. Do trees suck? <laughs> You bet they do, and it's time we do something about it. According to a group of conservative Utah lawmakers, 
organized by Representative Phil Lyman named the Yellow Cake Caucus. Claiming overgrown forests are guzzling Utah's water resources dry, rural members are now calling for a major logging initiative as the best hope for saving the shrinking Great Salt Lake and Lake Powell, despite a lack of scientific evidence that tree removal would make a big difference. Randy Gelander, a retired federal hydrologist who has for several years led the Natural Resources Conservative Services Utah Snow Survey, wow, what a mouthful there, stated at a caucus gathering, the forest we have to Today, have way too many trees. Too many trees, the wrong kind of trees, and the wrong age class of trees on many of the forests that we see sitting around here. So forest management has a critical role in producing stream flow. During the caucus's first session, group organizer Phil Lehman, prompted by a letter from Salt Lake County Council member Dia Theodore, who uh, she urged a focus on restoring forest health, discussed forest thinning along the banks of rivers and streams. In the letter, the claim is made that overgrown forests and non-native noxious trees along rivers and streams are consuming vast amounts of water that should flow to the Great Salt Lake. While many of Randy Gelander and Dia Theodore's assertions about poor forest health are beyond dispute, their proposed remedies for Utah's water problems are not actually grounded in science, according to ecology professor Ben Abbott and other academic Utah scientists. There are some nuggets of truth in there. Is this forest thinning a real solution for the Great Salt Lake, Abbott says? That's where the evidence really falls apart. Water yield increases following either mechanical tree thinning or wildfire are not guaranteed. There has been over 100 years of research on this topic using paired watershed studies. In such studies, researchers compare how watersheds with similar vegetation, soil, and elevation respond after a disturbance in which trees die, whether it's through logging, insects, or wildfire. Another critical issue is water quality, which can be degraded after trees die or are removed. Professor Abbott continues, Let's say that you do have large vegetation reduction in a watershed, enough that you see an increase in stream flow. Then, almost always, that's accompanied by a release of pollutants from the soil, including erosion, that create all of these problems downstream. Abbott led a presentation by Utah scientists which argued Utahns, especially alfalfa growers who account for most of the state's water use, must rein in waste so that more water is available in the environment to support vital ecosystems. In a moment of agreement, Abbott applauded Jalander for pointing out the ecological role of wildfire and forest health. The poor condition of the West's forest can be largely attributed to fire suppression, although overgrazing and past logging practices also play a vital role as well. The rise of fire suppression in the early 20th century enabled conifers, cone-bearing trees, to displace millions of acres of aspen a species that is not only resilient to fire, but also helps increase stream flows. Randy Gelander concludes, I see trees, particularly conifers, as the problem. In order to have a forest, you have to have trees. Trees are a wonderful thing. But when you look at it specifically in terms of water production, trees are the enemy, particularly conifers. <laughs> um, so, a very interesting story. But as we continue to see similar issues throughout the world, uh, for example, you know, Uruguay is going through their worst water deficit in 74 years right now. What importance is there to how we as consumers change our everyday practices as climate change continues to impact our day-to-day -day lives? Like, once again, these are very real 
things that are happening because of climate change. But also at that same time, I kind of want to get into like, as far as like Great Salt Lake water, 74% is used by agriculture, 9% by cities and industry. So it's, yeah, I understand, you know, people need to make everyday changes, but also I think there's something to be said about how we change our farming practices. All our practices. Um, <laughs> everything. <laughs> everything. Um, I, so I, you as your audience knows, I assume they know you send these articles ahead of time mm-hmm. to guests. So when I got that one, it's not something that I, I personally know a ton about. However, I am very fortunate to have a close group of writer friends who are all science writers. And one of them um, did a glaciology PhD. And I recently read her book that's in progress. It's it's not under publication yet. Um, and another one who has written two books about rivers in uh, the American West and Southwest in particular. Um, so, so I said, hey, there's this article. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's wrong. Can you tell me why? Mm-hmm. We had a very long discussion, which I won't burden everybody with. But um, this science is just bad. It's just trash science. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's bad science. <laughs> and so one of them. She sent me an article from um, Julia Jones, who has been working in the long-term experimental forest in Oregon. And I don't know how many people know about these long-term ecological study places around the U.S. Uh, I I don't find that they're talked about very much, but they do exist. Um, And it's where people do long-term ecological research, Mm -hmm. you know. And so this one is a forest in Oregon. Um, And what she found was, though, initially, I'll just go quote from the article I've got. Initially, there was a short-lived increase in stream flow after old forests were logged, but plantation forests beyond the age of 20 years used twice as much summertime water as old growth forests. And then my friend who was a glaciologist, I had forgotten that in her book that I read, she talked about a study she participated in where they were studying uh, how snowpack deals with different um, tree cover. And so one of the things she pointed out was, yeah, it, it can increase stream flow temporarily, but that's at the expense of the snowpack. And so what happens is you get the water melting really early, and then you don't get that colder water later in the year. And I know exactly what she's talking about. A few years ago, the lake in the town where I live, they, there was a warning about algae being toxic to dogs uh, because the lake had gotten so warm. And if it got much warmer, the algae growth would also be toxic to humans. So the high, basically what they said, hydrology is just so much more complicated than that. It, you don't just cut down trees and everybody gets a whole bunch of water. Um, like you said, erosion is a huge deal. We saw this with all the logging uh, in the 1980s, really, that there were, you know, there were mudslides and there was a whole town wiped out in Washington. Not, not even that long ago. It was in the last 20 years, I think. The Washington state town wiped out by a mudslide was also in 2014. An entire subdivision of the town was destroyed and 43 people died as a result. It remains the deadliest mudslide in U.S. history. And it was because logging had destabilized um, the hillside. I mean, I think you got to a good point about and what we kind of talked about in this last story. And obviously, these articles are just supposed to create a bigger conversation. But it's like taking data, and you see this a lot, especially in news media, taking data and using that data and cutting off pieces to make it work for your point. And that's what we're seeing here. It's like, yes, there is an immediate good to logging, but the future of that is bad. You know, we can solve the problem right today, but what about tomorrow? Right. That's exactly what's happening here. This Yellow K Caucus is saying, yeah, this makes sense. And they have data to back up that it makes sense in the short term, 
But as far as the long term, there's going to be drastic effects that are going to make the situation worse. And it's if we don't really listen to the actual science, we listen to the actual scientists who spend, you know, their entire lives figuring out what works and what doesn't. If we don't listen to them, what does it matter? <laughs> it's, it's, it's No, like when I was like reading the story, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so frustrating how you can take, you know, obviously real science, but spin it in a way that works for your cause but not really address the whole context of that data. Which you can, you know, do with any science. Um, it's immensely frustrating. Mm -hmm. So one of the people I talked with, uh, Melissa Sevigny, she, she just came out with a new book called Brave the Wild River, which is about two female botanists who traveled the Grand Canyon at a time when women didn't do that kind of thing. And they did a lot of botany work. It's a very, very cool book. I highly recommend it. But her first book was called Mythical River. And it, it, it speaks to exactly what you're talking about. It's, it's this whole, I don't even know what to call it white European settler imperial colonialist mentality that in particular has been applied to the Western mm -hmm. U.S. to just promote this absurd idea that you can take as much as you want and nature will keep giving. Mm -hmm. you know, the world will keep giving. Life will keep giving. Uh, in her book, she talks uh, about the beaver fur trade in the early trappers and just how any furs, you know how rich they got, yep. and then it was gone. Same with the, the buffalo. The buf yep. Well, the buffalo, that was also, a, you know, that was a purposeful government campaign to starve many of the Plains Indians nations. Yeah, um, They were like, well, point. if we take away their food source, mm -hmm. then they have to sell us their land. I mean, it, it just, land back is a big deal. <laughs> it just it feels, it's very important. But so then she, you know, talked about the river, the, you know, the Colorado River yeah. and anyone who's paying any bit of attention to that part of the U.S. knows that the Colorado River is in such dire straits. I was just reading an article this morning from the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists about uh, there's an Estonian company that has oil shale rights in Utah in the um, oil shale region. And I bring it up because one of the things they pointed out was that extracting oil shale uh, one barrel needs two to four barrels of water. So you're sacrificing clean water to get oil shale. So okay. when we talk about all the oil shale in Alberta, that we're putting clean water at a deficit in order to get some of the dirtiest and most expensive oil there is. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and so this Estonian company, they're like, well, surely we'll figure it out. And the Utah lawmakers, probably some of the same people are like, yeah, we can make this work somehow. But that water is from the Colorado River, which it, it's just you're never going to have that amount. And so you do have to think about what are we using this for and why alfalfa is a hugely water intensive crop. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm sure lots of people have read about almond groves in California. It's hard to get into the personal responsibility thing because you really think about how much money has been spent by oil companies in particular to persuade people that you just need to change your habits. We don't actually need to change the way you know, <laughs> that our company does business or how the economy works yeah. or, or anything else. I have personally tried to give up almonds or any almond products just because I keep reading about what's happening and how much water it takes to grow like one almond. Mm -hmm. But these are systemic problems. You can't, yeah. I think we all do have to make moral choices. We have to think about how we are behaving in the world, how we are relating to the world. That does not mean that we can solve systemic problems with those choices. You know, I can't defeat a car-centric world just because I walk my kids to school. That doesn't stop me walking my kids to school. But you need you need both. And I think in is it Arizona where there's these um, huge alfalfa farms? Also, it might be New Mexico. 
is it Arizona? Saudi Arabia, so, right? Yep. So uh, Saudi Arabia, they're using uh, alfalfa grown in the U.S. to feed cows in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. But getting to that point of alfalfa, obviously used as food for cows. And obviously here in the U.S., we eat a lot of meat. We eat mm-hmm. a lot of cow meat. Uh, I don't know why I described it as cow <laughs> meat. That's, That's a okay. weird way to describe it. Um, That's what it is. But when you look at how we change, how we farm, 75% of global agriculture land is used to feed animals. But only 8% of global calories come from that 75%. 37% of global protein comes from that 75%. So we're being very non-efficient in our farming. And then we have situations like what's going on with Saudi Arabia and alfalfa, where, I mean, I don't know if you've heard about this like virtual water trade, um, but technically, even though the U.S. is a net exporter of virtual water, it's understood, I mean, kind of it goes into this idea of that water flows uphill towards money, right? Even though the U.S. is, you know, this net export of virtual water, we're giving away all this water to other countries without actually giving a shit about what happens to us. Because it's, once again, going back to that money's in my pocket. I got mine. Fuck you. Mm -hmm. I don't care. And it's so disheartening to hear we're constantly giving and giving and giving and giving. Like you're saying, the natural world, yeah, it does replenish, but it doesn't replenish the same rate that we're taking. And we continue to have issues when we think that way, when we think we can take and take and take and yeah, the world will be fine. Yeah, the world will be fine for your generation. But what about the next generation after? What about 50 years down the line? I mean, humans are going to be here for quite a while longer and we need to figure out how to change practices. So it's like, all right, maybe we move towards more like plant-based or lab-grown meat where we don't have to raise as many cows. You know, obviously talking more about alternative energy, like the fact that, you know, we're talking about the oil versus water. I mean, I'm a big proponent of helping the world, but we also have to help ourselves first. You know, like I love the quote, you know, you can't help someone if you don't help yourself. If you're struggling, if you're having a hard time and you try to help a friend, you try to help a family member, obviously there's going to be good to that idea, but you also have to help yourself first before you can help others. You have to be healthy before you can help others because you're going to give a much more efficient help to people if you're healthy at the start of that. And I think that needs to be how we kind of view things, not going into like a, we need to shut down and we need to not help other countries. I mean, the fact that one, like I said, we're in this very wealthy country, but we have people that can't get food, that can't afford to live, that can't afford housing, that, you know, can't afford, you know, to get to where they need to get to make money, to afford to live in this society is, is screwed up. And there has to be drastic changes to change how we view what we want in this world and what we want specifically in the U.S. So I I think maybe I look at it slightly differently, but come to the same place. I do think of things from a like an interconnection and a commons perspective, Okay, which yep. is I heard a great interview with someone and I, I can't even remember what he does. He works with the Lake Erie watershed and he at the end of his interview, whatever it was about, he said, you know, what if we started thinking of ourselves instead of citizens of countries as citizens of um, watersheds? Hmm. So like... What is the water you're dependent on and how is that connected to other water? Like trace that whole watershed. How do you serve that watershed? Mm -hmm. Like what if we measured everything from that, from the health of our rivers? You know, because right now it would not it would not look pretty at all. I mean, the river in the town I lived in just closed off a section because once again, there is oil contamination coming from the rail yard. It was a super fun site for a while. You know, it's a cute tourist town. Most people don't know that, but it's got Mm -hmm. contamination. You know, most places do. I think the reason I don't think so much about helping, you know, myself first, first of all, I 
people always tell you that when you become a parent, especially a mom, I think they're always like, you got to put your own oxygen mask on first. And I'm always like, that's never been helpful because you're (laughs) triaging all the time trying to figure things out. And like, what does it mean to put your own oxygen mask on first? Do you have the time to think about it? Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of levels to why I don't think about it that way. Mm -hmm. When in America, maybe another, probably in other countries too. But when you say something like you got to, you know, get yourself healthy first, help yourself first. It's not that it's wrong. It's that the people who are already most comfortable kind of use that as license to not change. Mm, that's a good when I think about, you know, like the Colorado River, the people who are suffering most are the people who have the least. Like they are, there are Native nations who have no clean water, like downstream of that. That is their land. That is their home that was taken from them. And they're the ones who are suffering most by this whole mentality of we could keep taking and taking and taking. So I think it's it's kind of comes to the same place because it's like, okay, think about the people on this, you know, living within the land that makes up this country. Which people are we thinking about, you know, and how are we thinking about them? And who, you know, who gets to seat at the table in negotiations and who, who gets to determine what is just? Uh, and what is what is right, you know, and it, it's it's never the people who have been suffering most. And so I think it, in order to make that work, that's how we need to think about it. Mm-hmm. Who is suffering most? Am I letting them lead the conversation? Because it's just it's it's always there's always these imposed uh, solutions that then don't work for local people or make local people suffer. Yeah. And it's so often that someone will be like, well, we need this thing. Uh, in order to make our life better. And I'm like, but that's making these people over here suffer. Well, I mean, ultimately, like I've always viewed that is the responsibility of government is mm-hmm. putting policy in place that helps the vast majority of people, but also understanding on the back end that people are going to get hurt. There's no policy that you can put out there where it's going to work for every single person in America, every mm-hmm. 300 million plus people. But your job is as government is to make sure the people getting hurt on the back end are not the same people every single time. And I think that's what we've kind of come to in the US is a lot of minorities, a lot of native individuals, they're getting, they're always on the back end of all these policies that hurts them, you know, to use the analogy of the water flowing downstream. Yeah, everyone else is getting, you know, clean water, they're washing themselves. But then when the people downstream get the water, it's shitty water. Mm -hmm. And so the government needs to realize that we can't have the same people getting hurt over and over and over and over and over again. And I mean, that's something that really needs to change. It really needs to change how we elect our politicians on who are they standing up for? Because at the end of the day, that's what matters. Yeah. There was, um, I just listened on a drive recently to a local podcast, a local to Montana. Um, and it was, it was this very specific one about a law that was passed a couple of years ago. And it was one of those stupid things where some legislature legislator brought it to the floor, clearly hadn't read it. It was just probably given it, given it by an industry person, you know, and I guess nobody <laughs> yeah. else read it either because it, it passed and it was about um, gravel production, you know, gravel pits. The law being discussed here is House Bill 599, which passed in 2021 on a party line vote. And it's a horrible law. And it, it allows massive, you know, open pit gravel mining. Use It doesn't, nobody can take into account how it impacts the water. People aren't allowed to protest. Like, you know, there's some things in there that are still for the public to be able to influence that process, like locally, but it is severely limited. And it, it's very much like if you want to open a gravel pit in Montana, go at it. 
doesn't matter where it is. And one of the things, uh, what is it, the Montana Environmental Information Center, the woman who was speaking there, she said that, you know, what government is supposed to do is to protect the people from what industry wants, like from their activities. And so many situations, it just doesn't do that anymore. Uh, and this was the case in Montana where it's just like, nope, we're here to protect the industry's right to do whatever they feel like doing, no matter what its impacts on people. Yeah. And so there was, you know, the second part of the interview was all about a, a gravel mine that's being fought in a, a specific area and how difficult it is now that, you know, how little room there is for you to have any influence over what does actually happen in your backyard. And it, you know, produces massive pollution and uses groundwater and all those things. Yep. Well, yeah, I think there's an interesting saying along the lines of people who should be politicians don't want to be politicians. And it, you look at, I mean, you can just easily look at the uh, the salaries of politicians and then you look at their net worth and it's like, oh, you're getting paid you know, $50,000 or $100,000, but you're a millionaire? That doesn't <laughs> add right. up. So it's like these people that are supposed to be protecting our our lives are being bought and sold by these industries that just care about making that quick buck. And so then you get these situations where, yeah, land just becomes a money sign to them. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter who it goes to. It doesn't matter how it's used. It doesn't matter the effects of how it's used. It's just a dollar yeah. sign. Yeah. And, it, you know, it that, of course, would obviously lead into, like, how do we get people to actually vote with a, with a conscience and with knowledge, um, which is – <laughs> have that have that discussion with someone else on, an, on another two hour thing, um, but it, but it still gets back into identity things too. Like how many individual ranchers and farmers are actually in Montana um, or other places? There's not that many, but the the political power of that identity is huge. And then you know, going back to water, like I was talking to a friend who grew up in eastern Montana on a farm. Her father still. I think he still runs his farm, but he, he also runs his mother's farm, I think it is. And she's she's too old to really do the stuff herself. So she lives in town and he goes up to the land. They still own the land. And he has to irrigate the whole thing, even though they're not using it. Because in the West, if you don't use all your water, you lose your water rights. I mean, you're talking about like, what are we thinking about the future? Like, that's just insane. Yep. You know, that, that shouldn't be the way we do it when we're in a drought, which we kind of chronically are these days. But you start messing with that and people get pissed off. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, how do you talk to their identity um, and their values in a way that helps them understand how important this is and how important it is to care yeah. about other people and future generations? Well, no, I mean, obviously, yeah, it's like another two hour conversation, but it does go into like, how do we treat one another? How, I mean, a lot of the times you're trying to tell someone that their way of living is wrong. Mm -hmm. And that is a big, big hill to climb. Like imagine somebody saying that to you. It's like everything you think is wrong. Right. And yeah, that person on the other side might be right, but that doesn't make it any easier. And so we're needing to have these conversations that are, are quite tough, are quite important to the future of our earth with people that might not want to listen, might not want to care about what that conversation is, you know, you can give them data and facts and figures and graphs and all that for days upon days upon days. But if they're not willing to accept that, if they're not willing to be open, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And so you, we have to find these ways to I mean, that's why I like this podcast, it opens up these conversations, it says, Oh, yeah, let's 
look at this in a different sense than just going straight into it, how, you know, most conversations might or most interviews might, you know, because so much of how we move forward together as people is how we understand each other, how we disagree with each other. Like there needs to be a healthy amount of that in each one of us, but we have to all be open to it. Mm-hmm. If we're not willing to have conversations with people that we don't agree with, what does it matter? Yeah. And well, and and there's a, you know, there's a darker side to that too, which is, there are too many situations where you can't do that because the other person wants to kill you, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah, or and thinks, yes, or that's a good point. You have to pick are. and choose yeah. what. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think I think the only answer to that is is um, to do the other. You know what you're talking about with people who can have the conversations and decrease the power of people who are hateful, mm-hmm. who are hateful to such an extent that you you can't really have that conversation with them. You know, and hope that people who love them can help them change like, somehow down the line right <laughs> you know it's, the, tr- the trickle down economics of having conversations with your family members yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean maybe i don't know i well no i i think awareness is a like you need awareness first you need people to realize that there are these issues that are happening in the world that they might not be open to, you know, they might be closed off or they might not even have ever heard about this. Like, obviously, like, I'm well aware that there's water issues throughout our world. But like, to this extent of, you know, what's going on in Utah with the Great Salt Lake, um, like, I didn't know about this until I kind of discussed this and looked into the story. Or like, even I told you before we first started, like the, the rabbit deep dive I went into when it talks about walkable cities and the auto industry. It's like, these are things you don't really think about, but they're so ingrained into our society that if we don't take a second to kind of just step back and say, oh yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff going on in our world that we might not be aware of, but we should be aware of. Mm-hmm. And that's what I always say to my listeners. It's like, you don't need to go out there and change the world. You don't need to go out to Utah and figure out this problem, but you should be aware about it. You should at least know what's going on in your world, in your state, in your town. You need to be aware about it because when it comes time to vote, at least you're uh, somewhat somewhat educated in what needs to be talked about, what kind of politicians need to be uh, running our government, because those things matter. Those things matter that you're voting for people. You're not just voting down a line. You're not just voting red. You're not just voting blue. You're not just voting, you know, independent. But you're actually understanding what each of these politicians stand for and how they can help in these types of situations. I think one helpful thing I've talked about a couple of times on my Substack. You know, I can get really frustrated with, um, again, with the, you know, like walking writing, which is so lovely. Um, but also you know, like thought leaders, uh, and some writers and uh, like, I don't know, life hacking kind of things. <laughs> like, uh, I use, um, Leo, Leo Babauta, I think his name is, I use this um, task batching okay. system, not system, but just advice he has. And it's kind of helped me, you know, do, do my deeper, more creative work before doing all the fiddly work that feels good to check off the checklist, you know, but in his book, I think it's called Zen habits or something, you know, he talks about all these changes he's made in his life by using the system um, and also raising six kids. And I'm always like, has your wife been able to make those changes? Cause I, I really like, I want to know. And so when I listen to people who are like, well, you should, you know, I don't know, spend more time doing beautiful things or going for walks. I've kind of lost patience with a lot of thinking down that line that doesn't also acknowledge at the very least that there are barriers for most people to doing those things, even if it's just time, you know, and it's not your job 
to take those barriers away from people. But I think if you're not seeing the barriers, if you're not figuring out what they are, you can't solve those problems. Mm-hmm. And and walking is a it's a huge example of that. You know, most of the walking literature is just it's so lovely and it's like go to trees and go for strolls and walk to work. And it's like if people don't have sidewalks, they can't do that. If they live in a city, you know, where they're a person of color and they will get arrested for jaywalking just because of that, they can't do that. Like that that can't be the only conversation. And but I've started to think about this more broadly with barriers, thinking about what the barriers are for people and noticing them and articulating them at least to yourself. And I think if you do that locally and you and you look at what the politicians, people running for office are talking about, it can kind of help you clarify where your values are and what you expect people to do for your community and for people. Not just, we're going to give you jobs, but um, oh, like even where I live, there's a unincorporated municipality that has no sidewalks and the kids walk to school on the road and it's a super busy road. It's very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And that community worked for a long time to get funding to put in sidewalks. Like that's all they want is for kids to walk and be able to walk to school safely. And, you know, it's like there were a whole bunch of barriers there that most people wouldn't even think of. But the people who cared figured out what the barriers were and they worked on it and they made it happen. I think that's a, a perfect way to wrap up that story there. <laughs> uh, Antonia, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of the strangest and most bizarre news stories the world has to offer in engaging, productive, and meaningful conversation. Listeners, if you'd like to continue to hear from Antonia, you can do so by heading to her Substack, www.antonia.substack.com. As always, that link will be included in the description of this episode and on our podcast website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. As someone who has a fairly interesting history and story behind their name, from the nickname Nia, not Naya, to high school boyfriends falling in love with the concept of your name, (laughs) to the very real history behind both of your middle names, what importance and power do names contain? Ooh, Uh, that is a huge question. It's a big one. It's a big one. You always got to end on the big ones. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure it's one I can answer without feeling like I'm appropriating from someone else's culture or, you know, spirituality. I do think names have a lot of power. And I think not just for people, but for everything around us. I am right now I'm finishing revisions on an essay for an anthology from the Center for Humans and Nature that will be out next year. And one of the things the editor and I are discussing is air kin. Is it a relation? And I've been looking into this and that, you know, cultures all over the world have names for winds and wind is often a spirit and different winds are different spirits. And I haven't found anything around air and I'm struggling with it because I'm like, I don't, I just want to make something up, especially if someone already has that. And I don't want to, you know, appropriate that for my own thinking. But I do think that there is, (laughs) it's funny, I think there's a reason that fantasy books use this so much that names have power, secret names have power, names given to you by others have power. But I do I know what it I mean, I obviously don't don't know what it is. Um, yeah. I kind of care about my my own names. They do have a lot of family history in them. And I think I think they're important. I, my daughter actually just uh, a couple weeks ago told us that she wanted to change her name. And we took that very seriously and just kind of run with it. And I, and I think, 
I think it's part of honoring who people are and any living being. I think it's important. Uh, the name is an important way of honoring who they are. As far as relating to other humans, I don't know if there's something more important than just, you know, honoring that everybody is who they are and they should have a right to be that. And I think I think names are wrapped up in that somehow. And probably in my culture, I just don't, uh, I don't have access to that kind of knowledge right now in my generation. Yeah. Well, no, that, that was incredibly beautiful. <laughs> but no, I had this really <laughs> very interesting uh, conversation with my aunt and she um, obviously has a different last name than me, but she has three sister or two other sisters. And so her name will eventually die with them, her last name in this uh, scenario. But there's so much history behind that name. And it got me thinking mm-hmm. about that. And then, you, you know, you wrote that essay about, you know, kind of what does a name mean? And it does, it says so, it, it brings in so much history, like my last name, um, which I actually don't use on the show. I use my middle name. Um, but my last name has so much history involved in it and so much history that like, I want to know how I got to where I am now. I think that's why people are so interested in those genealogy tests, mm-hmm. especially, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but I'll just speak to my own experiences as an American. But I feel like there's not a great culture that's been created in America yet because we're so young. Right. So I want to understand how my culture from my grandparents, their grandparents, their grandparents has been built into who I am today. And that all comes down through your name, uh, last name, obviously. But then also, as you're saying, I mean, I think there's so much importance in first names, too, because it's so it describes you so well. Like if you look at a person and you just think that's a John, that's a Maria and if that ends up being their name, you're like, that just makes sense. There's just like this connection that I think you're right. You can't explain, but it's there. You feel it. You under you understand that it's there, but like you can't really put the words to it and understanding how our names give us so much power and so describe who we are. Like my name's Adam. Like it came from the Bible, Adam and Eve. Obviously, I'm not a religious person, but I understand the significance of that name. Mm -hmm. And maybe that plays into things that might be negative in my life. Maybe I'm like, oh yeah, I'm the the first man. (laughs) I got to, you know, do all these things. You know, maybe it might play in a negative sense in that, but I do understand that, you know, it's an important name. Mm -hmm. It's a name that millions upon millions of people look and read in a book that they then, you know, create their whole lives around sometimes. And so I think there is this power, but yeah, as you were saying, like, I just don't know how to explain it, but I thought it was an interesting question to kind of throw out there. I love the it. I love that you um, surprised me with it too, because I didn't have time to to think to think of an answer. <laughs> and and I think it's you know I think there's something to what you're saying too about lacking the culture and the history, because obviously this continent has tens of thousands of years of culture and history, and it and it's yes, but speaking to my own, yeah, family, and, it, and yeah. it's um you know because I spend a lot of time reading about you know, the commons in England and serfdom all over Europe and, and land ownership and, and issues there and um, really older issues of colonization with the Roman Empire. You know, there were all of these people all over Northern Europe and Britain with their own cultures that are still there. There's still like a vibrating string of that through, you know, like Celtic history is is a big one and Gaelic mm-hmm. history is something that people 
get really interested in. And I, it's like, how do we, how do we live on this continent? How do we belong on this continent? It's funny. I've actually had that conversation with a whole bunch of people recently. It's just, it's just been coming up. And I don't know if it's because, you know, I read a lot of indigenous authors. It's a question I think about a lot, partly because my ancestors in Montana were homesteaders from Denmark ruled Prussia to be specific. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so this question of, do I belong? How I belong? How can I be here? It, it's, I, I think it's one that a lot of white European descenders or descendants are only starting to maybe even poke at, not even ask necessarily. And I think it's really, really, really important that we, um, that we do that. And it's, it is interesting to go into the names because, you know, like my, my last name is my father's last name. And as with your aunt, like that name will die with me. All of the people in my generation are women. Um, and all of them change their names except for me. And, you know, my father's parents were Jewish. That's, uh, so my grandfather was from Ukraine, technically, and my grandmother was from somewhere near Belarus, but within the Pale of Settlement. settlement. And, I looked up, I was doing this whole big essay on Jewish identity, but I, you know, I looked up that name in the, um, the Shoah, the Israeli, uh, website that documents the Holocaust and my last name, Malchik is, um, there's a lot, uh, mostly in, they were mostly in Poland, some in Ukraine and pretty much the listing for almost every single one of them is murdered. And that was really interesting to me, you know, like how did, how are my grandparents, some of the few survivors of that, that history, obviously they were living in Leningrad. It was, um, they weren't in that part of the world, but then, you know, I look at my mom's side and it's all this other history that traces back into Europe. And I'm like, well, were they trying to escape these land, land ownership strangles? Um, like in Prussia, you know, serfdom was huge until the early 1800s. And then when serfs were freed, they were given land, but they were given like the worst land. Like they couldn't really live off of it. And so a lot of them ended up working for the same estates anyway. And so that's part of how you can trace what happened in Europe that I am starting to wonder if, you know, was so bad that it was then, you know, people were trying to escape it, but then they brought it with them. And and we're, we're living with the legacy of that because it got buried by people who benefited from it. George Washington was a huge land speculator. I just want to put that out there. But yeah, like even like looking back to like my father's side of the family came over from Poland. And I mean, obviously my last name is German, but they had a Polish last name. They changed it when they came over to get more work because they thought that was the right thing to do. But it's like, like what amount of like heritage and connection to my heritage did I lose because my name was changed from a Polish name. Uh, my last name was changed from a Polish name to a German name just so they could survive. Mm-hmm. But and then you kind of go into like, well, am I being a little greedy because they were just trying to survive, right? You know, it's but hard. it's all these interesting things that unless you take the time to really think about, oh yeah, there is some power. There are some interests. I do want to know more about this. Uh, you don't really think about it. Yeah. I, I have a friend who was talking about language and just, you know, she teaches at a Blackfeet community college and this came up in her class and just talking about, you know, generations of indigenous people who didn't teach their children the language out of safety, like just out of, out of fear mm. because it was so dangerous. Uh, and she just talked about, you know, her parents or her ancestry is completely from Germany and she doesn't know German, but her grandparents do. And it's like, you know, obviously nothing like what indigenous people went through, but just wondering like that very simple question, what have I lost by not 
having that language, mm-hmm. you know, even a way of looking at the world. It's uh, I don't really speak much Russian because my parents did teach me. But what I have learned, it's it's just so different. Like the verbs are crazy. Like you have to know what you're doing <laughs> and how before you even use the verb in a sentence. Like are you going through the woods, around the woods, yeah. to the woods and back, just one way through the woods. And it's just like you have to know all of that before you open your mouth and, and say it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like that's such a, such a different way of approaching us verbs, something as simple as verbs yeah. that aren't so simple. Mm-hmm. Well, Antonia, we have now, uh, we've got to my absolute favorite part of the episode, the part where I can phone in hosting duties, pass the metaphorical keys and hosting hat over to you to perfectly wrap up our conversations. Obviously, no pressure. Uh, but for a bit of help, I found a quote of yours that seems to be, I think, a perfect fit for this occasion. It speaks to the idea as humanity as a whole, as a collective unit to create this better future, you state, there's no planet big enough that can accommodate everyone's desire to just be left alone and live their lives. We have to be together somehow. So with those words in mind, close out our episode by sharing the importance of being together somehow. There, there are two things that I think are important about it. Uh, one is that there's no choice. There just, you can't. You, even if, I mean, say Elon Musk gets himself out of his Twitter hole, whatever it is, and, and makes it to starting to settle Mars, which is just a ridiculous pipe dream. Number one, anyone who goes there would be so dependent on other people, on supplies from Earth, for, for water, for air. Like, I don't understand why people think you can go there and just, what, build a bubble and not, there's no, <laughs> you have to extract water from the sand. Like, it's not an mm-hmm. easy, you just can't. Um, but not only that, he would be using resources and fuels and affecting life around him that we all depend on. And um, we can't escape, you know, I can't escape the effects of what someone else is doing. And neither can you. It's it's as simple as thinking about if you're with someone who's got coffee breath. <laughs> And it's like, if they're breathing right in your face and you can smell it, that is a very clear example of we can't wall ourselves off from the effects of other people's choices. And the other reason is that it's just a hell of a lot more joyful. It is a much better way to live. You know, I I am always um, craving time alone. I'm a big introvert and I, I never quite get enough time alone, but would I want to wall myself off in that way and not interact with other people and the world permanently? I, I once thought that I did. I once thought that that's the life I wanted, the cabin in the woods, no people. But I've lived back in my hometown now for eight years, I think. And, and just even when it's really challenging, what it gives me is almost indescribable. It just, it means so much, you know, knowing that there are friends I'll grow old with and that we go through struggles together and that our community has faced some real shit. And, you know, you start to learn who you can trust and who you can't and who you can depend on and who needs help. And it is just such a more fulfilling way to live than trying to do it all yourself, whether it's chopping your own wood or, you know, filling your own mental and emotional needs. Like it's just better. I love that. Two beautiful endings to this episode in a row. You nailed it on that. <laughs> uh, but thank you so much for you being... You are a very challenging interviewer. This, this is really... It's like stretched my abilities. You nailed it on every end. Um, but 
No, obviously, you know, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you very much for, you know, being open to going across. Obviously, there are a lot of time, you know, a lot of times in conversations, especially hosting the show, you sometimes realize, all right, we got to move this conversation along. But this is a conversation where I was like, I want to let this breathe because a lot of what we we're talking about was very important and it needs that room to breathe and for people to enjoy it. Um, so I, I very much appreciate you being here today. Well, I appreciate you giving the time as well. That's really it's a gift. And I cannot believe you read all that stuff. I mean, that must have, I feel like I, mean, I might show you my <laughs> notes, but man, my notes are everywhere. It's like, I, I've been doing this thing where it's like, all right, how do I research this guest without being creepy about it? Because it's like, I don't want to pull out some fact. You're like, how the heck did you know about that? Are you watching me? So there has to be a balance. Well, I mean, I write online. <laughs> yeah, like, right. It's, okay. it's, it's fine. It's not as creepy. My husband like fed my uh, name to chat GPT. Oh, really? all my stuff and like wrote an essay in my style and he's like look at what it can do for you and I'm like that doesn't make me happy why would that he's a techie he's, he like works in cybersecurity. And yeah. I'm just like what that's creepy like, yeah <laughs> weird. this is this is not creepy and I'm I'm very impressed and actually grateful it's it's I appreciate nice to that it was a fantastic conversation kinda, yeah it was I really enjoyed it uh listeners we're going to take a short break and when we come back the show will be over Peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. <laughs> <laughs>